We're going to be in 1 Samuel this morning again as we are drawing closer to the end. 1 Samuel chapter 24. I've heard it said before that injustice is in the eye of the beholder. At least that's how I understand it in our current culture that loves to seek revenge. The belief that everybody has a right to believe whatever they want to believe has been ever so slightly replaced with the idea that everybody is right. And in a land where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, to use a biblical phrase, doing justice becomes much more difficult. To be honest, it seems impossible. After all, how can you say that anything is wrong? And yet some things to us just seem wrong. Think through the news stories that you have either read or watched on television in the last few weeks. I imagine there was at least one story that you saw, that you read, in which you found yourself feeling deep down inside that this is wrong. It shouldn't be this way. I wonder if, if you know what uh, quizzling is. You ever heard the term quizzling? Vidkun Quisling was a member of the Norwegian army who founded the National Socialist Party in Norway in 1933. Six years later, he met Adolf Hitler and urged Hitler to invade and occupy Quisling's own homeland, Norway. Four months later, in April 1940, Hitler did just that. The Germans invaded Norway, thus giving German, Germany a strategic sea and air base for their operations against the United Kingdom. The invasion was quick, but it was not bloodless. The little nation of Norway suffered a great cost, and many Norwegians would lay Norway's suffering at the feet of this man, Quisling. He served in the puppet government that Germany installed. From that position, he became responsible for many atrocities, among them sending hundreds of Jews to concentration camps. And when Norway was freed from German rule in May of 1945, Quisling was immediately arrested, tried, found guilty of treason, and executed. You might have heard of him because his name has since passed into infamy in more than one language. Quisling can now be found in the English dictionary. It means traitor, particularly one who collaborates with an enemy to destroy one's own nation, like Benedict Arnold is in American English. What would you have done, born in Norway, living there, hiding from the tyranny of Hitler, and you happen to be walking down the street, and you pass by this man, Quisling? Just you and him. He doesn't see you coming from behind, but boy, he sure has it coming. You are armed. You are angry. You have suffered much under his evil rule in this country. What would you have done? Would you have had patience for justice to be served, or would you act? I believe these are good questions to set up for the study this morning as we look at God's word. For the last eight months, we've been studying the book of 1 Samuel, and we are approaching the end. This morning, we're going to tackle two chapters that are very similar, chapter 24 and chapter 26. We're going to skip chapter 25. We'll come back to it next week. But chapter 24 and 26 are very similar, as you'll see in these stories. And I believe there's three main lessons that I want to uh, show us this morning 
in these two chapters. Three that I believe that will work and apply to our daily life. Three lessons that we need to learn because they're vital for us as growth, as Christians, and for the witness to the world. First is decision making. Decision making. How do we make decisions in life? I would surmise that most here would want to follow the will of God for their lives. But how do we discern what the will of God is and how do we go about obeying it? So that's the first, decision making. Second, we will see is vengeance. What do we do when we're wronged? How many of you have been wronged just this week? How many of you have been sinned against? Some of you haven't been sinned against as much as David in this book, but some of you have. And I recognize that, and I believe the Bible speaks to that. So so we're going to look at vengeance, and the third is repentance. We see the need for repentance and forgiveness in these two chapters, and our need for both in our lives. So this is what I desire to look at this morning as we study God's word together. So I'm going to begin in prayer, and I'd ask that you would pray for me to preach God's word faithfully, and I'll pray for you to receive what God has for you today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as the body of Christ and to worship you. We thank you that we can come now before your word and we ask that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would lead your people to a right understanding of what your word says and that they would apply it to their lives, that they would leave this morning different than when they came in. They would take your word, use it to grow and to teach it to others. And we'll do this all for your honor and glory, for we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. If you remember, we left off uh, 1 Samuel two weeks ago. David had been chased by King Saul to a cave, and just as David was about to be captured, Saul was called away. Some time now has transpired since that scene. More psalms have been written during this time. A few of you asked last week uh, of the list of psalms. I mentioned it a few times, and then I failed to give you the list. So if you're interested in the psalms that were written during this period here in 1 Samuel, I'll list it out here for you. Psalm 34 was written, Psalm 52, Psalm 54, Psalm 56, Psalm 57, Psalm 59, and last week we looked at Psalm 142. All seven of those were written in the time frame from 1 Samuel 19 to uh, 1 Samuel 24. And it'd be good for study as you read through this book to go back into those psalms because it gives you another vantage point of what David was working through. But let's, let's dive in for the first lesson here, decision-making. And, and it's spread between the two chapters of chapters 24 and 26. And, and because these lessons are spread to these two chapters, I'm gonna go back and forth. And, and I've never done this before, so we'll see how it goes, all right? So just bear with me as we look at this in two different stories, but still, you'll see the similarities as we look at this. So the first one, decision-making from the vantage point of David. Chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went, went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now, usually these details are usually removed from stories like this, uh, but it's necessary to give us details on why this happened. Uh, I'm sure Saul had ducked into a cave before to relieve himself, but this is the first time we're told about it. 
And I found it interesting this morning, I was getting ready to leave and telling my, my, my kids, by the way, we're gonna talk about the potty this morning. They didn't believe me, but it's in here. These, these caves were all over in the in Endegi region. And by the way, I'll, I'll mention this too. I, I, last week I preached this and I shared, I was preaching on Psalm 142 in this cave and I asked people to pray for it. And I woke up on Monday morning to two text messages from Paul Sager and David Brown. Remember David Brown, our speaker? He was at that cave last Sunday. And so he said, hey, I prayed for you, and I was at the cave, and he sent me a picture. So it was pretty cool to, to see, <clears throat> even, I would love to see it, but that has nothing to do with the sermon. <laughs> Coming back to it, <clears throat> David is there. He has his 600 men with him inside the cave. And, and if you need to understand the situation at this point, he's, he's in trouble, really. If, if Saul were to find him, and his men, all he needed to do was simply call out to the 3,000 men that he has that are outside the cave. So you gotta understand the situation. They're trapped inside this cave. All he has to do is call out, and they charge in. They have nowhere else to go. This is where it's at. This is the situation where, where David and his men are, and, and, and it's an intense moment, sure. Verse four. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall be done, seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. When we come to David here in chapter 24, his life has amounted to all sorts of hills and valleys. One day he's at the top. The next day he's at the bottom. Kind of like us as humans, right? He's anointed king. And then the next day, he's sent back into the pasture to tend the sheep. One day high, next day low. One day he comes and he kills Goliath. He gets married. He is a successful commander. Hill. And then jealousy strikes Saul, and he's on the run for his life. Valley. Up and down. This really sounds like a human life now, doesn't it? How, so how does someone human like David, like us, make decisions when life goes back and forth, up and down, high and low? How do we discern what to do next? Well, we haven't gotten there yet, but at the end of chapter 24, we might think that, that we are in a hill again with David being released by Saul. But soon, just a chapter later, two chapters later, in, in, in 26, Saul is back at it again. So here in 24, we have Saul walking right into the hands of David. It, it, it seems to all that would see this, that this is definitely a hill moment for David, right? Something marvelous has happened now for David. The, the men that have been hunting him, that man has now walked right into his hands and David can now end it. His men, who has also, also been mistreated by Saul, see this as a glorious opportunity to end this madman. His men are, are pushing David to take vengeance on Saul. 
They even use the biblical language here. They say, here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. I mean, if God said it, David should obey it, right? But wait, did God say that? Is that what God said? Maybe, maybe David thought God did, and so he moves closer to Saul. And Saul, now blissfully unaware of what's going on, was on the potty. Seriously, you have to laugh sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament, okay? Whoever said it was boring is not reading it. In the quietness of the cave, David approaches. His sword stealthily draws up in the midst of the smell and cuts off a piece of the robe. And you think, really? Is that all? A piece of the robe? What an anticlimactic moment. And can you appreciate the risk that David took here? Imagine the skill and the stealth involved in this. I mean, the sword must have been very sharp for him to quietly and calmly get close enough to cut off a piece of the robe. And Saul leaves none the wiser. He leaves without any commotion. And then David turns and it says, the text says, his heart struck him. Literally, it means his heart smote him. It injured him. He isn't just mildly bothered. No, his heart knocked him down. He had the wind knocked out of him. You ever happened to you? Remember as a kid playing football, being hit or falling to the ground so hard, getting hit so hard that the wind just gets knocked out of you and, you, and you're shocked by it. You're, fear, you're, you're fearful. You don't know what's going on. This is David. He turns back and his heart shocks him into thinking, what did I just do? You see, up until now, David never accepted Saul's claim that he was his enemy. He never treated Saul as his enemy. David did have a promise from God to destroy his enemy. And who was his enemy, friends? The Philistines. It wasn't Saul. That was the promise that God gave. And David understood that the kingdom was promised to him. He, he was the anointed. But this wouldn't come about by David's force to now seize it. David was always a poor politician. He would never survive in America. And quickly he's accosted by his men for not ending Saul. And David turns to talk to them. It says the ESV is, is very weak. The New American Standard is also, verse 7, it says that he persuaded his men. Not even close what happens here. Literally, the text says David tore his men apart with words. Strong language here, David says to his men. They were wrong to think that this was some ordinary conflict. This was about the kingdom established by God and not men. So this is the first instance of decision-making. Let's look at the second, chapter 26. Turn over to chapter 26, verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hakila, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakila, which is beside the road of uh, on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When, Saul, when he saw that Saul came in after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. 
So it's, it's deja vu again here. The, the, the Ziphites sell out David again, turn over information on where he's at, and he's in the, the Jeshimon, which, which translated means wasteland or wilderness. And he's still a fugitive, driven out by society, deprived of normal comforts of home. He, he can't even worship with his people. He's running. And you, you might think that Saul just might be wanting to talk with David and how chapter 24 ends, but that's not the case because he brings 3,000 of his choice men with him. But it seems as though David has learned something from his prior events. He, he finally has the upper hand on Saul in this battle, and he scouts and he sees his Saul and his army. Then verse 5 here, chapter 26, verse 5. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying with his encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech, the, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment and with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner and the army lay around him. In verse eight, then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. It truly seems like this situation is similar to what we read in chapter 24. David has another opportunity again to eliminate Saul. This time it's not even David that would do it. Abishai says, I'll do the dirty deed, David. But David rebukes him, calls him to not touch Saul. Now, David's reason for, for not harming Saul was not because he felt that, that Saul could be changed, that Saul could be reformed to a new person. And it wasn't a, a new um, idea of, of nonviolence for David either. You know, David wasn't a pacifist. Do you remember Goliath? It wasn't that long ago. David refused violence for this man and for this occasion. Now, from Abishai's point of view, David has lost his mind. How could he pass up another opportunity to kill Saul? I mean, how many more opportunities will he have? David makes a decision in both instances. He chooses a way. And why did David choose to let Saul live? That's the question that we need to answer. Friends, what is the difference between providence and temptation? What is the difference between providence and temptation? How do you discern the difference between those two? David is clearly choosing differently than his men do in these situations. The advice from his men is to take Saul out. See, David, look, God has brought Saul right into your hands. You have to end him now. This is obviously God's will. In chapter 24, David seems to even be moved by his men, and then he stops before he murders Saul. He is stopped and he only cuts off a piece of his robe. 
he could have killed Saul. Everyone knows it. Saul knows it, as we will see. And he would have been justified in, in his men's eyes. I mean, Saul had been the one hunting him. He had been the one trying to kill him, putting a bounty on his head. Doesn't this seem like a God-ordained moment for David? Saul is here, just waiting for his life to end. But David doesn't do it. This is an important lesson for us to learn here. This is, whether young or old, we need to learn this. It's easy to confuse our desires with the will of God. It's easy to confuse our desires with the will of God. It's easy to confuse circumstances with the will of God. We hear voices in our heads saying it's our time, it's our opportunity. For those that are here, the desire to be married someday, you may think it's all right to live together first, to be intimate before you get married. You're wrong. God's word says otherwise. Until you're walking down the aisle and you're putting the ring on the finger, you are dating someone else's wife or husband. And for those of you who have waited for years for that promotion, and you, and you may think that lies, here lies an opportunity to go and take it, and you be justified for what you've been doing. You've been working hard for it, but that's not how God works either. He calls us to patience and endurance, even when we're suffering. See, it's, it's one thing for David to have the kingship promised to him. It's another thing of how and when this transfer will happen. The end doesn't justify the means. Just because it's a God-glorifying thing like marriage doesn't mean that God desires us to sin to get it. Wasn't Jesus tempted the same way by Satan? He was taken up. Do you remember this passage? He's taken up by Satan and shown the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says, all of these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. What was offered to Jesus was the will of God for his life. See, Jesus, this is the will of God. Jesus knew that God had promised him all these kingdoms and all of its magnificent splendor. But the only way that would come to pass in the will of God would be through the cross. For David, the only way to the throne was through the cave, through suffering. It was through him trusting and waiting for God to answer. God's will must come to pass God's way. It's the only way. And we too are tempted to find a shortcut for what we want. We want out of the difficult. We want out of the hard circumstances. The things that zap our time and energy and consume our focus. But when we escape God's plan for a quick fix, we skip out in the glorious work of sanctification that God has planned for us. And we need to have patience and trust in him. We need to have discernment also to know what God's will is. And how do we have discernment? We pray. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to glory and praise of God. 
Friends, we pray for discernment to know and understand what God's will is for our lives. And we need patience and trust as we wait for God to make it clear for us. We need to trust God. And this, this leads to the second lesson from these two chapters, from decision-making to the second, vengeance. Turn back over to chapter 24. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David preaches to Saul. Turn over now to chapter 26. Because it's the same kind of sermon. Chapter 26, verse 17. Saul recognizes David's voice as he's calling out to the camp from some distance. And he says, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil's on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if his men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a, a partridge in the mountains. So there's, there's a lot here in these, these two passages, and, and I could dive into this, but for, I think for, the, for our time, I want to focus on the issue of vengeance. And David has had two separate opportunities to have vengeance on King Saul. In these two chapters, though we read of David's humility toward the king, asking if, if God was the one who brought this into his life. David still shows humility to the current king by submitting his request to him, showing honor to the office that God established. But, but vengeance, I believe, is the main issue. It's the main issue in these two chapters. It's also the main issue in chapter 25. This is a, an important issue because every single human being faces the tendency and the desire to possibly get vengeance on those that hurt them. So instead of staying here, we're going to jump again. I want to jump to the New Testament, the book of Romans, chapter 12. Your Bible's going to work out this morning. Romans 12, really it's a sermon in itself. We're not going to even dive into great detail, but I want to read the passage and talk about this. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 21. Paul is writing this and he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In, in vengeance, friends, we, we are simply trying to hurt our enemy worse than when we hurt. We want to inflict pain, either physically or verbally or even emotionally. We want them to hurt more than when we're hurting. We're, we're simply trying to outdo their evil by returning evil to them. And our motivation is not the common good or even upholding justice, no matter how desperately we try to spin it. We just want to lessen the pain that we are experiencing by inflicting pain on our enemy. And this is where Romans 12 comes into play. Paul says to bless those who persecute you. Don't repay evil. Live at peace with all if it's possible. Don't avenge yourself, but leave that to God. In fact, go a step further and be able to help your enemy if you have the chance. And he says, don't be defeated by their evil, but overcome their evil with good. And friends, I'll have to be honest with you. This is easy to read, but hard to do. It's hard to apply. You see, you're not in charge when you're being malicious to others. You're, you're doing what evil wants you to do. You're being molded by evil. You're being controlled by evil. And I've sat with some of you and heard the deep pain that you've experienced by others, even so-called Christians. And now you're in the midst of bitterness. But friends, don't you see, when you're bitter, they're winning. They're controlling you. They've won. Don't be controlled by evil. Overcome evil with good. And the only way to overcome evil is to forgive. And now I need to explain this because I don't want you to shut me out here. Forgiveness is not letting them get off scot-free. Forgiveness is a means of giving up the hate and the malice and the anger that fills your heart and giving up the desire to inflict pain on them. You give us up so that you can pursue justice and possibly reconciliation. And we need to be honest here, that's hard. It's countercultural. But isn't this exactly what David does here? Yeah, I've found that, un that until I can forgive, I can't properly help others by confronting them on their sin. When my heart wants vengeance, then I'm only thinking about myself and my needs. And I can't show them who they really are. I have to rid my heart of the hate and the vengeance before I can seek any help for them. And if we don't, the vicious cycle will continue to go until we break it. 
When my desire is not to bring that person to a proper biblical view of their sin, instead it's to try to inflict pain on them, they will never see their sin. See, forgiveness doesn't let a person off, but it frees us. It releases us in our heart to pursue biblical justice and possibly reconciliation. And and reconciliation is obviously dependent on the attitude of the wrongdoer. But forgiveness prevents me from being as evil as they are. It allows us to break the circle. And let me try to illustrate this for you. I'll use the Lord of the Rings. How many of you have read or watched the movie Lord of the Rings? Well, if you haven't, I'll save you the nine hours of watching the film and sum it up in one paragraph. It is a great story. The books are better. But the basic plot of the story revolves around this great ring of the Dark Lord. And the good people find the ring, but they cannot use his own power against him without becoming just like him. They can, as it were, defeat the Dark Lord only by becoming the evil Dark Lord in its place. And the circle then would continue unless they break it. They need to destroy the ring, and the whole way there, it's hard. It's debilitating. It's draining of energy because it's, it's seemingly easy just to put the ring on to destroy their enemy. But as soon as they do that, they become like their enemy. Do you see the connection? The only way is forgiveness, but we want to put the ring on. You want to become like them. You want to try to destroy them. But when you do, you become just like them. Unless forgiveness happens in our hearts, our anger can turn us as demonic as they have acted. And we will become just like them. We will pursue evil. But God's word says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And in those words, he's instructing us to forgive and to wait for him. See, forgiveness is a payment. When someone has wronged you, you can either get payment for the wrong they did or you can let God do that. And I've been asked, how how do I forgive like that? And you need to understand that forgiveness is given before it is felt. Forgiveness is a commitment not to get your payment for the wrong you've suffered And it's a choice. And and friends, seldom is it a feeling. You make the choice when you forgive someone. Uh, Peacemakers actually has four decisions that we make when we forgive someone. And I think they're excellent. I'm going to walk through them here. The first one, and when we forgive someone, the first choice we make is that I will not dwell on this incident. Are you going to be controlled by their sin against you? Or will you choose not to dwell on it any longer? You make the choice not to dwell. And you will need to make this choice every single day. The second decision we make is I will not bring up this incident again or use it against you. And this is where the rubber meets the road and whether you believe that God is big enough to bring justice into the situation. Do you trust him? Are you able to leave it into his hands? This is again is a choice for us. The third is I will not talk about it to others. This is not only for your benefit, but for the benefit of others. And this choice will help our heart heal during this trauma. And the fourth, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Now, this is tricky. I'm going to pause about talking about this to my last point in the sermon because this can look different in every situation. And I'll just tell you, parents, 
in the home. It'd be great to search for this on Peacemaker's website, print it out, put it on the refrigerator, because I'm sure if your home's anything like my home, a lot of repenting and forgiveness is, is happening week in and week out. A lot of the same discussions happening with our kids. And it'd be good to kind of walk through this with our kids every time because this not only benefits your home and your kids, it'll benefit their marriage, okay? Trust me on this. It'll benefit their marriage to understand where forgiveness is and how to, how to give forgiveness and receive it. But, but I think the best thing we can say about all this is that when you forgive someone, you're promising to keep preaching to yourself that you have forgiven them. You're promising not to, to keep going over and over the, the, the replay in your mind, the things that they've done, the things that they've said. You preach to yourself. You remind yourself. You don't dwell on the incident. You don't let it uh, dwell in your mind. And when you forgive, you're developing a new attitude about that person. You're seeking to overcome evil with good. And friends, this is where the cross comes into the discussion. This is why the cross and what Jesus did for us is revolutionary to our lives. It isn't just an entry point into heaven. It's our life. It's our breath. It's our purpose. It's, it's how we live. And how do we forgive? How, how do we release the pain, the anger, the deep hurt? It only can be done because of the cross. This is why it's so foreign to the rest of the world that we can forgive. Because they don't have the cross. They don't understand the cross. But as Christians, we do. The cross means at least that first, God so hates evil and injustice that he's willing to come and give his life to end it. But also, second, we are so tainted by evil as well that Jesus had to die so that we could be forgiven. And when we struggle with forgiveness, we're removing the wrongdoer from the community of being human, and we have removed ourselves from the community of those that sin. And we say they are worse than anyone else. And we're really not that bad. But as Christians, we cannot see the cross and what Christ did for us and not apply it to our lives and those that sin against us. Because we know the love of God. The unfathomable grace of God. And that is greater than their sin against us and our sin. Then we can forgive. And we can wait for God to bring justice in that situation. And we will seek the proper justice of God and we will leave it in his hands. And I know this is hard, friends. Only because of Jesus Christ can we strive to be obedient here. So we've seen David's decision-making and we've seen David's dealing with vengeance. The third is repentance. The repentance of Saul. In both accounts, Saul, when shown by David that he could have taken his life, he demonstrates some form of repentance. Turn back to chapter 24, verse 16. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept and said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how, how you have dealt with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will, him, will, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. 
Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The words of David calling out to Saul must have hit him like a ton of bricks. It's been a long time since Saul even called him by his name instead of calling him Jesse's son. And for the moment, it seems that Saul is overcome. He, he weeps in verse 16. Was it because of the shock of how close he was to death? Was it possibly the stabbing pain of an accusing conscience? Remember, Saul had a lot of blood on his hands at this point. Or was it the realization that he really had no power in himself to stop this transfer from, from himself to David? It could be all these things. The fact that Saul was walking out of the cave unharmed is irrefutable proof that David didn't see Saul as his enemy. Saul recognizes that David will be king in verse 20, and we need to note that this wasn't dragged out of Saul. It's not as if David were there with a blade to his neck. No, it wasn't forced out of Saul because of, of, of David bringing this out. No, it was forced out because of David's righteousness and David's patience. I'll turn over to chapter 26. We see another repentance from Saul. Verses 13 through 16 is David calling out to Abner, the, the, the commander of the army, and his failure to protect the king. And then verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will, no, I will no more do harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Saul yet again walks free and alive. But Saul's confession this time goes a little further than the one previous outside the cave. In this confession, he asked David to come back with him into his service. But David's response wasn't wrong or shocking. All he does is offer back the spear, as long as someone will come and get it. David has learned something in dealing with Saul. He wouldn't go back. He wouldn't return with Saul. I would surmise that David does forgive Saul, but that doesn't mean that all is well and trust is now fully established between the two of them. You see, Saul's repentance, I believe, is worldly. He is the portrait of those today who grieve the consequences of their sins, but not their sinful condition itself. Those that insist that they are sorry but resist dealing with their underlying evil by turning to God in true faith. You see, friends, repentance has feet. True repentance by Saul would have been expressed and resolved to depart for the altar of the Lord, there to deal with his great sin before God, and only afterward then offer declarations of good faith to those that he injured. And David sees this from Saul's words. And he hands the, the spear back to him. He intends to leave. You see, a repentant Saul would have begged David to keep this spear, if not just destroy it. 
as an, as an emblem of his, of his wicked corruption. But he doesn't. Friends, repentance has feet. It is action to display there's a change of heart. Instead, David preaches to Saul. He says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Unfortunately, Saul didn't understand repentance, and he would have that tragic end to his life. Verse 24, he said, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. See, David isn't trusting Saul, not one bit. He trusts his Lord. And what matters for God's king was righteousness and patience, not cunning and cleverness, not power and control, not success and victory. Righteousness and patience. And we see this so prominently in these two chapters. David's righteous and patient behavior. David couldn't accept Saul's offer to go back. Saul couldn't be trusted. David knew that he would be king one day, and so did Saul. And David would seek to be righteous and patient in his life as he waited for that day when God would call him to take the throne. So as we close, I, I believe very few of us will ever be presented with a situation as remarkable as David's. And yet the same choice is before every believer when confronted with injustice or disappointment. When we come to this decision, will we be taking matters into our own hands or will we trust God enough to wait? Of course, the wrongful action of taking matters into our own hands can take several forms. As in the story, it may just come down to taking revenge, taking vengeance into our hands. Someone's wronged us and, and we're gonna settle the score. When a man's wife continually treats this man poorly, he, he then decides he's gonna cheat on her. Or when an employee is belittled by their boss, they respond by ruining the reputation of their boss or undercutting the authority. See, the common feature here is not the extent of the vengeance, but the heart behind it. You hurt me, so I will not stop until I hurt you. And the problem with that response, in addition to the theological problem, is that we consistently overestimate the extent of wrong that's done to us. And we, we simply cannot be trusted to, to mete out justice properly. Of course, taking matters into our own hands can take a more subtle form of stolen pleasure. Because our life is not turned out as we hoped for, we find escaped in something illicit. And we drown our disappointments with distractions and thinking and hoping that these short-term thrills will, will cover the dissatisfaction we have. So whether this stolen pleasure is obvious and socially unacceptable like using illegal drugs or the stolen pleasure is more subtle and accepted like escaping to your television for hours and hours of viewing. And the result is the same. We drink the poison thinking that it will remove the pain and quench our thirst. But it won't. But most likely the, the most common way we take matters into our own hands is through compromise. We feel that we deserve more money for all the work and time that we've put into our careers, and so we hedge a little. We, we, we fudge a little on our timesheet or our taxes. I mean, if we're just stealing from a big corporation or big government, it, it won't be noticed, it, it won't be felt. 
or even those coming back to marriage, those that want to date and looking for the right one to marry. And so you begin to lower your dating standards. Maybe it's okay, you think, it's okay, I can just date a non-believer as long as they're willing to come to church with me. I mean, being with the wrong one is still better than being with no one, you think. And behind these urges is the idea that we can bend on what we know to be right to sacrifice integrity on the altar of immediate happiness. And the tragedy is that happiness will always fail to deliver. And in the meantime, we do severe damage to our souls. So friends, we can take the wrong action and fight the, through the miserable situations, always unhappy, or we can choose to trust God and wait. And our culture sure does hate the word wait. Can I be honest with you this morning? I hate the word wait. Whether that means I'm driving in traffic or waiting to board a plane, I hate it. And our, our culture defines waiting and, and implying that it's helplessness or insignificance. For them, it means inaction. But I believe there's a second definition of waiting. Attentive readiness. And God wants the latter. Attentive readiness. This is what we see from David in these two chapters. David's waiting does not lead him to inaction, but to a passionate and servant action. He protects himself by running. He confronts Saul and passionately pleads his case for justice. And he refuses to shortcut God's promises for him by crossing into lines of compromise and sin. And he does all of that so he can wait and he can watch for God's will to happen. Remember, all sin, all sin and compromise begins with unbelief. When we sin, we forget how good God is. When we sin, we forget how good it truly is to be in Christ. We forget who God is and what God has done for us, and we move then to quickly sin. And the tragedy is that all our efforts to get the good life apart from God are are futile and they're pathetic. We're, we're, We're like a man being taken to a steak dinner who does not trust the host and is busily stuffing his pockets with cheap, cheap beef jerky when he's promised steak because he can't trust. He doesn't believe. And we settle for so much less when we don't believe and trust God. And so when we feel the tug in our hearts to go around God's way, we should ask ourselves, why is God's love and approval not enough for me? See, all of our impatience ultimately goes back to a failure to believe the gospel. We either don't understand how God feels about us or we fail to value his approval highly enough. And this unbelief can lead us right to the precipice of disaster, entertaining a quick fix to a situation that is hard. And friends, we need to resist this urge to take that step. We need to trust in the all-satisfying God and wait for his goodness. 
And the resources waiting for us are found in the steadfast, unmovable love of Jesus Christ. David refrains from killing Saul when Saul deserves it. And Christ refrained from pouring condemnation on us when we deserved it. David rejects the sinful shortcut to the throne. And Jesus rejected Satan's shortcut to the throne through the world and temptation. Christ could have taken the rule of the world by sidestepping the cross, but that would have been at the cost of our eternal lives. Instead, Jesus chose to go the long, hard route to the throne so that by his death, we could have life. God, I thank you. I thank you, Father, that we can come to your table this morning knowing that you have done it all to accomplish salvation for your people. That Jesus endured in this life. He endured the temptation to show us to display for us what trust in God looks like. And we recognize this morning that we have failed so often, that we have chosen unbelief in times where we need to believe your word. We thank you that Jesus endured and that he died for us. And that this morning we can join together with other believers and remember our Lord's sacrifice for us on the cross. That he took our place, he took our punishment for us wretched sinners. Thank you for being the gospel for us, Jesus. Amen.